Okay, so we do kind of have a backbone. When you do come follow me, kind of the backbone is the New Testament, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or the harmony of his life. And there is kind of a backbone to this class. And so we're actually going to start the class outside of the New Testament, but we're going to use the New Testament. You'll see what I'm talking about. So let me get you to that backbone. When the church got to Kirtland, Ohio, Joseph oversaw the development of a school of the prophets. Coming out of the apostasy, where was the church, doctrinally speaking? We all on some, the same page, coming in from all the different denominations. Joseph has a problem, right? We've got to establish the core fundamental doctrines of the church. And then we have to go out and tell the world. So he established a school of the prophets. And then Joseph oversaw the curriculum for that school. Now, that document was printed in the scriptures for many years. It wasn't until the 1921 edition that we took it out of the scriptures. So it was always included. In fact, doctrine and covenants came about because doctrine was the revelations. I don't remember which one was which, but doctrine was seen as the revelations that had been received, and the other one was this document. That's kind of the origin of the title, Doctrine and Covenants. But in 1921, the church felt like that was curriculum that Joseph had prepared. It never came as official revelation, and so we pulled it out of the scriptures. Unfortunately, because we pull it out of the scriptures, it doesn't get studied as much as it should. And anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone know the curriculum for the School of the Prophets in Kirtland, Ohio? We call it Lectures on Faith. Have you heard of Lectures on Faith? No. Have you anyone read them? The name sounds familiar. Okay, you've at least vaguely heard. So Joseph prepared this curriculum called Lectures on Faith. Now, just for, for tonight's sake, if you want to follow along, um, I have put, um, let me make sure it's working because the other, hold on. Okay, there's a couple ways to get it. So if you want to follow along on electronic version, go to brotherdunford.org slash lectures. Brotherdunford.org slash lectures. If you don't, then just hang on. You don't necessarily need to follow along, but if you want to follow along, brotherdunford.org slash lectures. Or if you can't find it that way, and some people for some reason were having a difficulty, go to brotherdunford.org. And then at the top of the page, it says resources. And then one of those resources are the lectures on faith. But I'll bring them up here and we can kind of follow along. Um, there's seven lectures. Let me get to the very top. There's seven lectures. Lecture one is kind of a summary of what they saw as faith is. Lecture two is how is faith born? How does faith come into the world? Where does faith come from? 
And I love the concept that they present here in lecture two, because faith is born, verse 30, faith is born when God manifests himself to you. Faith is born when he connects with you. Do you remember the moment you knew there was a God? Do you remember the moment he manifested himself to you? That I love what, now I'm going to attribute these to Joseph. Other people claim Sidney Rigdon wrote them. I believe Joseph is the genius behind the lectures, so allow me to quote Joseph. Joseph says, the, forego the object of the foregoing quotation is to show to this class the way by which mankind were first made acquainted with the existence of a God, that it was by a manifestation of God to man. It's when God reaches down and connects with you. Do you remember one of those moments? I vividly remember one of the very first times I ever remember feeling a connection to a real being. I was seven years old. I was in second grade at South Jordan Middle School, or South Jordan Elementary School. My mom had gone to California and she came home with a, a ball, a super ball. It was the bounciest thing I've ever owned. And at school, I took it to school and we invented this game and we'd play this game with this super. Well, one day it bounced out into the field. I lost my super ball. And it was very important to me. So we all go running out to the field and I was devastated. Time goes, as every minute goes, uh, goes by, I'm devastated that I've lost my Super Bowl. And kids start shuffling off because they, you know, lost interest in finding. And pretty soon I'm alone in that field. And I knew the bell was going to ring. And if I had to go in and the fourth graders came out, I'd never find it. And so I said a prayer. I said, Heavenly Father, Help me find my Super Bowl. <laughs> now, somewhere there were nations going to war and people's lives were on the... And here's a seven-year-old saying, help me find my Super Bowl. Probably not his highest priority. But I swear on my life, I promise you that when I said, Amen, I was looking at my feet and there was a weed and I moved the weed with my foot. And at my feet was my Super Bowl. The second I said amen, it was sitting at my feet. Now that wasn't the moment. But I picked it up and I was so thrilled to have found it. I said, thank you, Heavenly Father. And I heard a voice, felt a voice, I don't know. But I vividly remember. He said, you're welcome. And I knew he knew who I was. And I knew he cared. I walked into that school that day with my very first layer of faith. Because God had manifested himself to me. That's where faith is born. And the more of those you have, the stronger your faith becomes. Do you remember moments where God has manifested himself to you? That's how we know we exist. Now, building on that foundation, if you want to follow along, find lecture three. 
Lecture two is quite long. But find lecture three. Lecture three, verse two. Joseph Smith writes, let us here observe that three things are necessary in order for any rational and intelligent being may exercise faith in God unto life and salvation. Let me say that again. Three things are necessary for any rational and intelligent being to have faith in God that leads to life and salvation. First, the idea that he actually exists. Now that was lecture two. When he manifests himself to you and you know he exists, you have to have that. You have to have that connection and know that he exists. I know he exists. He's manifested himself to me. Boom, there's number one. Now, number two, Joseph taught, you will never have faith that leads to salvation unless you have a correct idea of his character, perfections, and attributes. If you don't understand his character, it will affect your faith. And I have had a front row seat for many years as I watch people leave the church, lose their faith, almost without fail, it's because they misunderstand his character. You have to understand a correct understanding of his character, his perfections, and his attributes. Now, the last one is you have to know the way you're living is pleasing to him. So if this is lecture two, knowing that he actually exists, this is lecture two, lecture... This is what he covered in lecture two, knowing that he actually exists. God made a manifest to you. Guess what lecture three is? His character. Guess what lecture four is? His attributes. Guess what lecture five is? His perfections. And lecture six is this one. Do you see how lectures on faith are laid out? You'll never have faith until you connect with him. That's lecture two but you'll never have the kind of faith that leads to salvation if you do not correctly understand his character, his attributes, and his perfections. So it is one thing to go through his life and understand the events of his life. It is another thing to find in that life a correct understanding of his character, his attributes, and his perfections. And that's our backbone. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a list of, according to the lecture, six. I don't think they're limiting them, but the, the lectures on faith give us six character aspects, six attributes. And we're going to start there. We're going to use these as our placeholders, and then we're going to go to the New Testament and use the events of his life to help us understand that aspect of his character. So going through the rest of lecture three, you should see his character. Now I'm gonna, this is the blank, this is the blank uh, HTML version. Allow me to pull up my colored version. Here is 
Lecture three. Okay. Correct idea of his character attributes and perfections. Now we get to verse eight. Having said so much, we proceed to examine the character which the revelations have given of God. Let me give you the six. Here they are. Ready? According to verse 13, first, he was God before the world was created and the same God that he was after it was created. Now, these are kind of fancy. We're going to see if we can make them more applicable. Let me just read them. Second, that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in goodness. Now, I'm going to pause on that one because it means a lot to me. So they're, they're going to list the six, and then they're going to go into detail about each one of them. I want to read this. We'll come back to this one in next week. But one of my absolute favorite descriptions of my Heavenly Father and the Savior I love so dearly. Let me read it. Unless he was merciful and gracious, slow to anger, long-suffering, and of full of goodness. Such is the weakness of human nature and so great the frailties and imperfections of men that unless they believed that these excellencies existed in the divine character, the faith necessary to salvation could not exist. For doubt would take the place of faith and those who know their weakness and liability to sin would be in constant doubt of salvation. That's about every one of us. Every student I've ever had, every child, myself, that's me. Because I know my weakness and my liability to sin, sometimes I doubt salvation. Were it not for the idea which they had of the excellency of the character of God, that he is slow to anger and long-suffering, and of a forgiving disposition and does forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. He is kind. He is naturally forgiving. It is not his character or his nature to hold a grudge. It is his nature to be forgiving. And you need to hold on to that or else your faith is going to be affected. And you will be in constant doubt of salvation until you understand that it is his character to forgive. I love that. An idea of these facts does away doubt and makes faith exceedingly strong. So there's number two. Number three, he doesn't change. Can we go back to number one for just a second while I take a note on it? Thank you. We're going to do number one tonight. Okay. Number three, he doesn't change. Which means if he loves someone else, he loves you. Every miracle he ever performed, he would perform for you. But we doubt that. Sometimes we see it as the form of, well, I know he can. I just don't know if he will for me. Meaning, 
He doesn't do it anymore. He changed. He made a promise and then he changed his mind. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change. Number four, he doesn't lie. If he gave you a promise, he'll keep it. He doesn't lie. Number five, he doesn't have favorites. He doesn't like one over another. Number six, he is the embodiment of love. Those are six characteristics. Now we're going to make those real and we're going to make those meaningful in his life. Now, just if you want to just see the list, let's go to lecture four. Lecture four are the attributes of God. We shall now show to show, we shall now proceed to show the connection there is between the correct ideas of the attributes of God. Now we'll digest all of these one by one as we look at his life. But here are the list of his attributes. Ready? Number one, knowledge. He knows all things. Now we're going to spend some time on that because I think you, we need to understand how significant that is. Not only does he know oxidative phosphorylation and astronomy, he knows the human condition. In essence, how many ways has he broken his arm? How many ways has he broken his arm? Every single possible way you can break your arm. He has experienced that. No one has ever broken an arm in a way that he hasn't experienced. Now that's phenomenal if you think about it. Has he been addicted to drugs? Has he suffered addiction? Schizophrenia? Depression? Anxiety? Does he know what it's like to be gay? Has he had an abortion? Has he been raped? Abused? Betrayed? Every human condition. He knows. That is a phenomenal attribute. We're going to see that at play. He knows me. He knows which of those attributes I need. He knows how to save me. His chief attribute is knowledge. The second one on the list is power. He can do all things. He created this earth. He could fix any broken body. He could fix any broken brain. He can fix financial challenges and health challenges. He has power. He is omnipotent and can do all things. Now, why doesn't he do all things? We're going to get into his perfections. His perfections are the balance between his attributes. Why doesn't he, why doesn't he save me from all pain? Because he knows something. He knows what I need. 
and what I don't need. He knows what would be a wasted experience for me and what would save me. He can save me, but sometimes he doesn't because he knows. And we're going to do the same thing with the next set. Justice is three. That is balanced with number five, mercy. But he knows when to be just and when to be merciful because he has perfect, number four, judgment. He knows exactly how to balance justice and mercy, knowledge and power. I have watched him save the dead. I've watched him bring someone back to life. And I've watched someone else give a blessing to someone who was about to die, and it didn't work. They died. So why does one person live and why does one person die? Is it because he lacked power or because he knew something? Do you see why faith in his character and his attributes are essential? And the last one, number six, is truth. He is a God of truth. Now we're going to talk about each one of these one by one. I want to start with his first character. Now, I don't know how often we'll come back to lectures. I'll make this available if you want to study the lectures, but they're going to be kind of our backbone as we look through some of the character and the attributes. But I want to start with his very first character. Abraham. Um, I just wanted to say that it's kind of interesting that the... Oh, when, when we started talking about attributes and the first one was knowledge, I was there and I was like, oh, of course, the attributes of Christ. I've read about this in Preach My Gospel, you know, is that, is that they have like a list of attributes. And while I'm sure that they're describing the same things, uh, the, the bulleted list is different. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I've, I don't, I don't want to I've been very curious as to why we deviated from lectures on faith, and I don't have a good answer for that. But it is interesting. So let's go back to his character. Now I'm going to read it. The way it's listed in the lectures on faith is interesting, but you know what? This doesn't do it for me. This is not what, I, what resonates with my soul. So let me see if I can make it resonant. The, the character of God is that he, he was God before the world was created and the same God after it was created. Now, in the explanation of that, it says this. I'm going to try to make that as big as I can. But here's, here's the explanation of that. An acquaintance with these attributes in the divine character is essentially necessary in order that the faith of any rational being can center in him for life and salvation. For if he did not in the first instance believe him to be God, that is the, cre the creator and upholder of all things, he could not center in his faith in him for life and salvation for fear there should be greater than he who would thwart his plans, and he, like the gods of the heathen, would be able to, unable to fulfill his promises. 
But seeing he is God over all, from everlasting to everlasting, the creator and upholder of all things, no such fear can exist in the minds of those who put their trust in him, so that in this respect, their faith can be without wavering. Now, I like that. I respect it. But that doesn't resonate with me. What resonates with me is that he is greater than any problem I will ever face. He is greater than every obstacle, every pain, every anguish, every concern. He is greater than my problems. And holding on and trusting that allows me to get through them. I want to illustrate with an example from his life. Jacob calls death the awful monster. I don't know if you've ever experienced the death of someone you love, but death is an awful monster. It is very common in this world that people believe that death is the great conqueror. No one beats death. But Jesus beats death. He is greater than death. And when I study that and I read that and I believe that, then I trust that he's greater than all of the other challenges I face. When I am faced with a challenge in my life to know that he is greater, let me illustrate it like this. If this is my problem, And this is me. I have a neck. If this is my problem and this is me, what does looking at my problem make me feel? I can't win. This is intimidating. The problem seems overwhelming. But what if, and I can't draw it, but what if... I were to compare my problem with God. When I look at my problem compared to me, it seems overwhelming. I can't do this. One time the Israelites prayed, neither know we what to do, but our eyes are on thee. If you look at just you and your problem, this gets overwhelming. I can't do it. But the moment you understand that God is greater than all of my problems, this doesn't seem so overwhelming. Let me illustrate with his life. Go ahead. Please. Uh, when I was on my mission, I was about nine months in, and my teacher and I got really, really, really sick. We were only in Florida, so the challenges shouldn't have been as intense as they were, but for about four months, we were only kind of sister missionaries, and the president would kind of let us work and kind of let us sleep, and some days we would be gung-ho, and we'd say, we got it, we got new medication, we're going to be okay. We'd go out, and our stomach would hurt, or something else would happen, and we would just go, why is this happening for so long? And at one point... We had gone to the ER a lot of times, and they hadn't really found a solution. 
and it was just kind of a typical day or a typical evening now and I was just kind of in a daze. I don't think I was very hydrated either and the Relief Society president in our ward happened to call us. She said, sister, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I think I'm okay. And she was like, can you go look at your companion for me? And she was laying on the ground and I just remember looking at her eyes and they were so sunken in and so dark. And she was kind of an abrupt lady anyways. And she said, sister, I think you need to go to the ER again. And I think you can't drive right now. You seem pretty delusional, but you need to go to the ER. And I remember looking at my companion, realizing I need to go to the ER. I can't do it. And she's like, I'm out of town, but you need to figure out a way. Again, how are we gonna go? And I didn't want to alarm her. No one needs to panic more. We had already panicked too much. So I went to the other side of our apartment and I remember getting on my knees and praying and going, okay, up to this point, there's moments that, you know, spiritually I kind of go up and down. And right now I'm just holding out that something's gonna happen, something good, we're gonna have a miracle. Right now I can't even think straight. I don't have mental capacity, I don't have physical energy. I don't have anything to give you. And she needs help and I can't do it. And I, remember, I don't think I've ever pled so much in my life as I really thought about the dire need we needed for a miracle. And all I can say is the prayer ended and I had a specific thought to call a specific person and I called them and I said, you need to take us to the ER. They took us to the ER. Someone kept helping us. We ended up being in the ER for a few days. My companion ended up going home for good. And it was just a really rough week. But I think back to that a lot. I think back to the power of my honesty in that prayer and realizing this is too big. I can't, I can't do, do it. it. But I'm going to trust that you are going to put together what I need. That is absolutely beautiful example. This is too big for me. I can't do it. And when I see the size of the problem compared to my ability to conquer it, I get overwhelmed and discouraged. But when I trust that he is bigger than this problem, that he has resources I don't, he has strength that I don't, he is bigger than this problem, there is a confidence that comes. That's what faith is. He is bigger than my problems. Just two examples, one from the Book of Mormon, and then one from his life that I'd like to focus on. Do you remember when the angel stops Laman and Lemuel from beating Nephi and says, it's going to be okay. You're going to get these plates. You're going to get them from Laban. What was Laman's reaction? We can't because Laman is too big. What was Nephi's response? Do you remember? Should we read it? First Nephi chapter four. What was Nephi's response to Laman saying, we're not, we're not able to do this. It's too difficult. First Nephi chapter four. What was Nephi's response? Notice the very end of chapter three. Go to the end of chapter three. Laman again began to murmur, saying, How is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban? Behold, he is a mighty man, and he can command 50, yea, he can slay 50. Why not us? In other words, what was he saying? We can't do this. And that's when discouragement sets in. What's Nephi's response in chapter 4, verse 1? 
We can't, but God can. I love his response. He says, came to pass that I spake unto my brethren, saying, let us go up to Jerusalem and let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Behold, he is mightier than all the earth. Then why not mightier than Laban and his 50? Yea, even his tens of thousands. If you focus on the problem, it's going to be discouraging. If you focus on God is greater than my problem, that is the faith I need to persevere. Now, let me illustrate. Turn with me to John chapter 10, New Testament. Let's go to John chapter 10. His dear friend Lazarus is sick. He gets word that Lazarus is sick. And guess what he does? He waits. He sits around and does, sorry, John 11, not John 10. He sits around and he waits. He waits for four days. He deliberately doesn't go save him. And he tells them it was for their sake. For your sake, I'm going to let him die. So when he finally shows up, he's been dead. Look, look at verse 17. How long has he been in the grave? Four days. How long does it take for your brain to die if it doesn't have oxygen? About eight hours. Four minutes. Four minutes. Without oxygen. Now, when is... I was thinking of a different statistic. <laughs> four hours. And he's been in the grave dead for four days. Any chance he's mostly dead? <laughs> he's all dead. Knows no magic, knows no Mad Max and a miracle peer that's going to... Four days he let him sit. He's rotting, isn't he? He stinketh. Now watch, Mary and Martha are going to come out. So verse 19, and many of the Jews came, and many of the Jews came to Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. And Martha, as soon as he heard that Jesus was come, went out to met him. But Mary sat in the house. When Martha said unto him, Lord, if thou had been here, my brother had not died. What's the suggestion? What's the hint there? What's the suggestion? You could have prevented death. And what's the next word? But. It's too late. Isn't that the hint here? If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. You could have prevented it, but now it's too late. Jesus says to her, thy brother shall rise again. What does she assume? Okay, someday, a million years from now, in the resurrection. And what is the Savior's response? One of my absolute favorite moments I am the resurrection. It is now because it is him. I am resurrection. I am life. I command. 
and life occurs. Show me where you've laid him. He stinks. Show me where you've laid him. They take away the stone. Verse 41, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. Verse 43, when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. He is greater than death. He is life. He speaks and the dead come back to life. Now, if he's greater than death, he's greater than your debt. He's greater than your health problems. He's greater than your social problems. He's greater than your degree and the challenges you're facing in getting it. He's greater than job problems. He's greater than health problems. The first aspect of his character, I think the lectures on faith are inviting us to trust, is that this man is greater than any challenge you face. Trust him. Seek his help. He is the solution. He is greater than any problem you will ever face. Just a couple other moments from his life. Go back to Luke chapter 5. You can find this in several places, but let's do it in Luke chapter 5. Start in verse 17. Came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors and law sitting by and they came out of every town of Galilee and Judah and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was there to, pre to was present to, to heal them. 18, behold, men brought in a bed, a man which was taken with the palsy. And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. And when they could not find any way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went on top of the house and tore the roof open and let him down through the tiling with his couch into the mist. Now that's a group of people who want to help their friend. You got to admit that's, that's admirable. Let me just get him close to Jesus and he'll heal them. Verse five, 20, when he saw their faith, he said unto him, not be healed of the palsy. What does he say? Your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. And they start murmuring that he's blasphemy. Who is it? Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus perceived their thoughts and he said unto them, What reason ye in your hearts? Which is easier to say thy sins be forgiven or to say rise up and walk? Which is easier? to say that a guy's sins are forgiven or make someone with the palsy walk again. That's obviously, right? So then he says, that you may know that the Son of Man hath power upon the earth to forgive sins. 
He said to him, sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise, take up thy couch and go to thine house. And immediately he rose up before him and took up whereon he lay and departed into his own house. In other words, let me prove to you that I am bigger than any problem. This man has a broken body, but what else does he have? A broken soul. If I can fix his body, what was he saying? If I can fix this broken body, then rest assured, I can fix everything else that's broken. His miracles prove that if he can calm the sea, he can calm your sea. If he can fix a broken body, he can fix a broken life. He can fix a broken marriage. He can fix a broken relationship. His miracle proves that. Trust him. He is greater than all of your problems. Last thing I want to point out is when Jesus is on the cross, he says seven things. I'll let you find one through five. First one was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Anyone tell me the sixth? The last thing he says is, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Anyone tell me what he said right before that? Before he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He said three words. It is finished. It is finished. Which stands as a testimony that if his pain ended, yours will too. If his agony ended, yours will too. If his challenge and his fear and his anxiety ended, yours will too. He was greater than the debt he had to pay for our sins. He is greater than the challenge you face. If his ended, Yours will too. He is greater than every challenge you face. That is the first characteristic we need to study. And we have to have faith that he is greater than the awful monster. I don't know anyone who can beat death permanently. I appreciate doctors. I appreciate brilliant science that can push it back as long as they can. But you know what? Death always wins. But he beats death. He wins. He is greater than death. He is greater than sickness. He is greater than debt. He is greater than every mistake I've ever made. 
He can fix everything that is broken. We have to understand that the chief character, the first character, is that he is greatest of them all. Let me just end with one more. Let me take you to Moses. We'll go out of the New Testament for this one, but would you go to Abraham, not Moses, go to Abraham in the, New, the Pearl of Great Price. Abraham in the Pearl of Great Price. Now, this is where Abraham sees the cosmos. Abraham 3. Abraham is taken on the sea. Abraham sees the suns, all of the stars in the universe, and he sees that there's an order among them, that there is one star that is chief among all the stars. Where our sun fits in that, we don't know. But all of the stars, there's an order, and they're ordered by intelligence. And not all stars are of equal intelligence. And there, there's one star that's most intelligent above them all. And what's the name of that star? Kolob. And that's the star that is nearest to Heavenly Father. So when Heavenly Father is doing his dishes and the sun is shining on him, what sun is shining on him? Kolob. It's the greatest of all the stars. Now, he's telling Abraham this because why? Do you see the metaphor here? Heavenly Father's children are like these stars. And that if we were to line up by intelligence, there would be an, a difference. And some at that moment are more intelligent than others. And we can kind of look around and see that, that some are more intelligent than others. And the reason he points that out is because there is a kolob. There is someone who is the smartest of them all. Now, who is that kolob? It's Jesus. It's Jehovah. And he says it this way, starting in verse 18. If there be two spirits and one be more intelligent than the other, yet these two spirits, notwithstanding, one is more intelligent than the other, have no beginning and they existed before they shall have no end. Verse 19. These two facts do exist, that there are two spirits, one being more intelligent than the other. There shall be another more intelligent than they. And then I believe he says, says this humbly, but this is a truth. I am the Lord thy God. I am more intelligent than they all. The English there is different. You and I wouldn't write it that way. How would you and I write it? Them. For example, if I, were to, if I were to split this class by height, these people are shorter and these people are taller, and I fit right here, I would say I'm taller than what? Them. And the word them means I am taller than each of them. He didn't say that. He said they, which makes them a conglomerate. Do you understand what he's saying? Jesus is not more intelligent than each of us. He's more intelligent than all of us put together. Jehovah in the premortal life was more intelligent than all of us combined. 
So when the father said, whom shall I send? What did every head in the room do? <laughs> right? And when someone else volunteered, what did we do? Because it was obvious who should be the redeemer. We need to hold on to that faith. I know you face incredible challenges. And in the face of those challenges, you may seem small and unable to conquer. But chief among his character is that this man, Jesus, who walked around in sandals is greater than everything. He is the greatest of us all. He is greater than death. If he can fix a broken body, he can fix a broken life. He can fix anything that's broken. Of that aspect of his character, I testify. And when he said it is finished, it was a promise that so will every challenge you face, every pain you endure, someday it will finish. He will calm every storm in your life. He is greater. And so we sing, the winds and the waves still know. Peace, be still. The winds and waves still know who is the greatest. With all my soul, I testify, there is someone greater than every challenge you face. Trust him, seek him, ask for his help. Get him into your life because he is greater than them all. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.